somebody behind you. Good God, you scared me. We're talking true crime, honey. <laughs> you can't sneak up on me like that. I'm going to the car wash to wash your wheel <laughs> off my motorcycle. <laughs> Woo, okay. <sighs> All right. Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Well, hi everyone, this is Deb. And I'm Beth. And we want to welcome you to episode number 20 of Dying to be Found. Wow, that went quick. Didn't it though? Let me tell you, since we're on that topic, guess what? What? Do you remember how I told you in the past that I'm really weird with numbers? Like I'm not good at math, but I just count weird things. Yes. Well, statistically, I found out that the average podcast lasts 19 episodes. That's all? That's all. And we are in episode 20, so we have bypassed the statistics, Beth. Woo woo! Makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, and the way we're going, I think we're really getting our groove. I think we got the sound down. Now, I will say this. When I'm editing, I notice that there's some background noise because we're talking, so I'm not really listening to that. If anybody hears any jingling or clicking or barking, that would be Dennis telling me that he wants attention. So, yeah, I, I've got to get a little bit better about the background noise, but I think so far we're getting our groove yes get the groove on <laughs> okay so we are glad that you are here today and is there anything else you want to talk about beth no but i'm curious um what's the latest new country belgium yeah we need to say hi to belgium they're one of our top three listeners wow well welcome belgium we appreciate every one of our listeners but welcome belgium okay so anything else before we get started no Beth, you always find the best high profile cases so intriguing and I am really excited today. I know you're not going to disappoint us. I'm going to let you take it from here. Yeah, so Beth's going to take this one and I hope that you all enjoy this as much as I'm going to. Okay, thanks Deb. Um, I've been intrigued by the Lindbergh baby kidnapping for years. In my early 20s, I read a book on it and it always seems like I'm saying I read a book on it at some point. I really enjoy mystery. It doesn't have to be all about gore, but it's the mystery, the intrigue, because it gets me thinking. And I hope this gets you thinking as well. It's not as straightforward as one would think, but we'll find that out later on. I will say I do remember hearing about this case while I was growing up, but I really, over time, have forgotten. So I can't wait for you to continue. Thank you. Charles Augustus Lindbergh was born in Detroit, Michigan on February 4, 1902. He was an American aviator, military officer, author, inventor, and activist. Well, Charles Lindbergh was famous for the first nonstop flight overseas from New York City to Paris on May 20, 21, 1927. 
Flying the Spirit of St. Louis, this trip was 33 and one half hours, 3,600 miles, or 5,800 kilometers, and he did this all by himself. This flight pattern was made before, but Lindbergh became famous because he did this trip solo. Any thoughts there, Deb? Do you have a bird? It's outside. My windows are closed. Oh. I know. I love it. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. Again, I haven't heard this in so long that I forgot that he was the one that did that solo flight. And so, what, back in 1927? I remember hearing the spirit of St. Louis, but they didn't have passenger planes back then, did they? No, there was a flight that made it ahead of Lindbergh, but there were two people in the airplane. He was a big sensation because he did it solo. And that would be pretty hard for all those miles. Like, how would he not sleep for 33 and a half hours? I never thought of that. My first thought was, how did he not run out of gas? And that's something I never thought of. Very good point. Yeah. Okay. Well, Charles Lindbergh was married to Anne Spencer Morrow, who was born on June 2nd, 1906. She was an American writer and aviator. The two got married 1929, and in 1930, Anne became the first woman to receive a U.S. glider pilot license. Go, Anne! Absolutely. Together they had six children, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. being the firstborn. Charles Augustus was born to Charles Lindbergh and Ann Spencer on June 30, 1932, in Inglewood, New Jersey. For the remainder of this episode, I will refer to the two parties as Lindbergh and Charles Jr. At 9 p.m. on March 1, 1932, 20-month-old Charles Jr. was snatched from his crib in the nursery on the second floor in the Lindbergh's home in East Amwell, near Hopewell, New Jersey. His disappearance was noticed at 10 p.m. by the children's nurse named Betty Gow. A ransom note was discovered on a windowsill during the search for Charles Jr. The note asked for $50,000, which is an equivalent to $1,055,142 in today's currency. It's a lot of money, Deb. That is a lot of money. And I wonder if they did that because of Lindbergh's notoriety. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking, too. A call was made to the Hopewell police and the report phoned into the New Jersey State Police, who would become the investigators into this kidnapping. During their search, mud was found on the nursery floor and two sections of a ladder had been used to reach the nursery. There was no blood stains or fingerprints in or around the nursery. Household and estate employees were questioned and investigated, and widespread appeals were made to the public in hopes to learn more about the kidnapping. A second ransom note was mailed to Lindbergh on March 6, 1932, postmarked Brooklyn, New York. This time, the increased demand was for $70,000, or in today's money, $1,477,000, one hundred and ninety nine dollars on the dot. Can I ask a question? Yes. Do you know how they responded to the first ransom note? Did they pay it? Because all of a sudden a second ransom note was sent. How did they respond to the first one? No, you're going to find this intriguing. There were a total, I think, of nine ransom notes. Wow. Really? Yeah. So they were just coming out willy-nilly. Oh, okay. Interesting. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> 
A third ransom note came in that an intermediary appointed by the Lindberghs would not be accepted. I know what an intermediary is because I talk about intermediaries, which to me is a middleman. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. So that means that whoever's writing the ransom notes is not wanting to talk directly to Charles Lindbergh. They're looking for a middleman to be the communicator or like the negotiator. Exactly. Gotcha. That same day, Dr. John F. Condon, a retired school principal, published in the Bronx Home News an offer to act as a go-between and to pay an additional $1,000 ransom. The following day, a fourth ransom note was received by Dr. Condon, which indicated he would be an acceptable go-between. This was approved by Lindbergh, and on March 10, 1932, Dr. Condon received $70,000 in cash as ransom and immediately started negotiations for payment throughout the newspaper columns using the code name JAFSI. That's J-A-F-S-I-E. What does that mean? That's confusing to me. It's very confusing to me too because it was in reports, but it never told me what it stood for. So Dr. Condon is the one that is the intermediary. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. And so he's the one that's receiving the ransom money to give whoever's demanding the ransom? Yes. Okay, so they're just willfully handing him over money with no questions asked. Yes, exactly. Okay, I I might be getting a little ahead of myself here, but that sounds a little fishy. I totally agree, only because of everything that I've read. I wouldn't have thought it being so fishy in the beginning, but uh, it certainly does as time goes on in this story. After receiving an anonymous telephone call on March 12th, Dr. Condon received a fifth ransom note in the newspaper. The ransom note was delivered by a taxi cab driver named Joseph Perron, who received it from an unidentified man. The message stated that the note would be found under a stone by a vacant stand. 100 feet from an outlying subway station, this sixth note was found by Dr. Condon. Following instructions from the note, the doctor met an unidentified man who called himself John. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Is all of this hearsay, is Dr. Condon just saying that he met with an unidentified man or did somebody witness this? There was no witnesses, but he did meet with him. Okay, I'm sorry. I Again, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here. Dr. Condon sounds a little fishy to me, but keep going because I'm intrigued. Very interesting thought. And you'll find out towards the end why what you're saying is an interesting thought. Okay. The meeting took place at the Woodlawn Cemetery. They discussed payment of the ransom money. Over the next few days, Dr. Condon repeated his advertisements, urging further contact and stating his willingness to pay the ransom. On March 16th, 15 days after the kidnapping, a seventh ransom note was received by Dr. Condon. On March 21st, an eighth ransom note was received by the doctor, insisting on complete compliance and advising that the kidnapping had been planned for a year. So as an intermediary, whoever is communicating with Dr. Condon is just sending all this communication directly to him, nobody else. Yes. I'm starting to see your your views on this. Okay. I can't get off of this. I know. (laughs) 
On March 29th, Betty Gow, the baby's nurse, found Charles Jr.'s thumb guard worn at the time of the kidnapping near the entrance to the estate. What is a thumb guard? I think it's something to put over your thumb so you don't suck your thumb anymore. So it's different from a pacifier? Yes. Maybe they didn't have pacifiers back then. I don't know. I could have probably used a thumb guard myself. Otherwise, I might not have needed braces. You know, the funny thing is, when I when I wrote this out, I thought of you. Really? Because I remembered you sucked your thumb for a very long time. I sure did. (laughs) (laughs) So, Deb, can you believe there were three more ransom notes to come? I can't. That's a lot of ransom notes. It sounds like they were complying the entire time, but it also sounded like they were kept handing over a large sum of money every time with no result. I don't understand why at some point in time the baby wasn't returned. Well, this is why. There were three more ransom notes, as I said, before Charles Jr.'s body was accidentally discovered on May 12, 1932. The body was partly buried and badly decomposed about four and a half miles or 7.24 kilometers from the Lindbergh home. That was pretty close, eh, Deb? Yeah, very close. Tell me again the timeline of when he was kidnapped. How, how long was that? 12 days. 12 days. Okay. The discovery was made by William Allen, an assistant on a truck driven by Orville Wilson. The baby's head was crushed. There was a hole in the skull, and some of the body parts were missing. Oh my gosh! That's terrible! It is. It's pretty brutal. After all this... Mm Mm-hmm. The coroner's report showed that Charles Jr. was likely killed within hours of the kidnapping because of the injuries he received. So whoever's doing this was just obviously leading people on with the ransom notes at this point. Yes. With no intention of returning him. Exactly. That's disgusting. It is. So now I'm going to get into the investigation. On March 2nd, 1932, J. Edgar Hoover, the Attorney General and FBI Director, got in contact with the Trenton, New Jersey Police Department. He told the New Jersey police that they could contact the FBI for any resources and would provide any assistance if needed. The FBI did not have federal jurisdiction until May 13, 1932, when the president declared that the FBI was at the disposal of the New Jersey Police Department and that the FBI should coordinate and conduct the investigation. The New Jersey State Police offered $25,000 in reward for anyone who could provide information pertaining to the case. They are still throwing a lot of money out there for the time. So this is after they found Charles Jr. Yes, I think this is because it's such a high-profile case because of who his father was. So true. I can't see this being done if it was just anybody. There's a lot of information I I had on uh, Charles Lindbergh. He was involved in so much. And to keep this to one episode, I had to just focus more on the kidnapping. But if you're interested in Charles Lindbergh, certainly look him up. He's very intriguing. Yeah, I think I'm going to dig a little bit on that. On April 5th, 1933... 
President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued an executive order that stated that all gold certificates used to pay Charles Jr.'s ransom that were found in circulation must be exchanged for Federal Reserve notes by May 1, 1933. President Roosevelt proclaimed this for a couple of reasons. One, the United States was still in the middle of the Great Depression and he felt the exchange would prevent the hoarding of gold. And two, it would provide investigators a better way to track for the ransom money that may have continued to circulate. That's interesting that the president got involved with this. It's kind of unusual. Mm-hmm. But I guess my question is, were the authorities trying to track where the person was spending the money? Exactly. Okay. On January 17, 1934, a letter was circulated by the New York City Bureau Office to all banks and their branches in New York, stating that there was an extremely close watch for the ransom certificates that I talked about when President Johnson made his proclamation. The letter with all the numbers on the $40,000 ransom money was circulated to banks, clearing houses, grocery stores, insurance companies, gas stations, airports, department stores, post office, and telegram companies. That is a lot of legwork right there. It is. Now let's talk about the five theories that authorities looked into. Okay, there's lots of theories. Okay, well, I mean, there's nine ransom notes. Why not have five theories? (laughs) (laughs) Very true. So theory one was on household staff members. Signs that it could be an inside job were strong. It's as if the kidnapper knew where to go. The footprints only went to the window of the nursery. They had a dog and the dog didn't bark. Well, that's odd. Mm-hmm. Because I have a dog and he barks all the time. He interferes with our recording <laughs> almost every week. The baby did not cry. The person was familiar with the household knowing which window to go to. The odd thing were the blankets from the crib were neatly folded and placed on a nearby shelf. What? Yeah. What kidnapper worries about folding? Yeah, that makes no bloody sense whatsoever about that blanket. That's crazy. No, not at all. Theory two is a Scandinavian gang. Dr. Condon says he needs to meet with a man who calls himself John, who the police and media dub him Cemetery John. Cemetery John tells Condon he's one of a group of sailors on a boat. He says the baby is safe and they need to make an exchange for the ransom money. Based on Condon's description, a sketch was drawn. Condon asked for proof that they had the baby. Condon received that proof, which was a gray sleeping suit that Charles Jr. was sleeping in the night he was taken. On April 2, 1932, a meeting with John Condon and a stranger met in the cemetery and made the exchange of money, and a letter was provided to Dr. Condon expressing the whereabouts of Charles Jr. The letter says that there are two ladies on a boat caring for the baby. Directions to find the boat were enclosed, and police raced off to Martha's Vineyard to find his boat. After an extensive search, the boat was never found. So at this point in time, it's a wild goose chase. Exactly. And again, my suspicions are saying that Dr. Condon is sending people in the wrong direction. But keep going, because I might be wrong. No, you might not be. On Theory 3, Violet Sharp, a waitress in Ann Lindbergh's mother's house, had been under investigation. 
Distraught Violet Sharp committed suicide by swallowing poison when she was about to be questioned again. Oh my gosh. Sadly, upon further investigation, her movement around the night of the kidnapping showed that she had no connection with the abduction, so she did kill herself when she didn't need to. Oh, that is a shame. I'm sad to hear that. Her stories kept changing. She says she was at a movie. She was she was numerous places. So I think this poor lady just was so flustered that she totally forgot where she was. And it was discovered after her death that she was indeed at a movie theater. Oh, my gosh. Now, is Theory 4 going to surprise everybody? Do we know what Theory 4 might be? Uh, no, I'm... <laughs> I'm at a loss here. There's a lot going on in my head right now. I'm trying to piece it all together. Well, theory four is Charles Lindbergh himself. The father. The dad. <gasps> what? No. Yes. That's what I first said, but then there's just too many things pointing to him. Oh my gosh. Since family members are the first to suspect, this theory came up, but given Lindbergh's notoriety, no one wanted to question him. And we've seen that because the president got involved and it's such a high-profile case, but really, did they investigate? Yeah, absolutely. Huh. The only statement ever given is a one-page account where he can't attest to his whereabouts on the night of the kidnapping. Now, come on. What? Really? Wait, it's a one-page statement that he wrote out to the police? Okay, that's fishy. Very fishy. How can you not know where you were when your child was kidnapped? Thank you. That would be burned into my memory for the end of time. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And when the authorities wanted to write down all the numbers on the banknotes, Lindbergh strongly objected. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? That he, they wanted to write down all the numbers so that they can find out track yes track track the numbers on the banknotes so that they okay so if they were in circulation they would be able to track them easier why would he even object to that he you know as a parent okay i'm gonna say this i can be completely off target here there's a difference between a mother and a father i understand that because in my opinion women are very fierce when it comes to being a mother dads fathers are a little bit more they would be protective they would be the breadwinner but i'm sorry in this instance i don't think there's a difference between a mother and a father Lindbergh should be doing everything possible to cooperate with the police i hear you there i'm i'm right on board okay i'm just saying that <laughs> that theory doesn't make any sense no Lindbergh was known to be a jokester as well and the week before the disappearance of Charles Jr., Lindbergh hid the baby in the closet a week prior, allowing Betty and Anne to get hysterical, thinking the baby was kidnapped. And the, f the odd thing is, Lindbergh thought this was very funny. What? That is bizarre. That, to me, sounds like 
Lindbergh is setting up the situation, like completely just setting the whole thing up right there. Okay. Now, so I suppose this theory here is really throwing me for a loop. But after you said that, I feel like he's just setting the whole thing up. That's too coincidental for him to play such a joke. That's that's not even funny. No. And then ironically, what, a week later, the baby is kidnapped for sure? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Wow. Well, getting back to the kidnapping, what if this was a second prank by Lindbergh? Maybe the baby was dropped from the top of a ladder and the baby died of a skull fracture. Why would the baby be dropped from a ladder? If you look at photos, it's extremely high. It's not like one of our houses nowadays where it would be from a second story. This was an old house and it was up very high. And it was happened to be snowing that night, so he could have lost footing. Okay, so it sounds like what you're saying right now sounds like he could be in the process of kidnapping his own child like this theory suggests and there was an accident so he had to scramble from there exactly gotcha okay another suspicious fact is that Lindbergh ordered an immediate cremation of Charles Lindbergh Jr. I'm just going to say from the cases that we've heard or the true crime cases that I listen to, a lot of the time the suspicion falls on these people who who do want immediate cremations and it turns out to be that person involved for whatever reason. Exactly. That's for sure. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So was it an accident? Some people thought that Lindbergh killed the child intentionally based on eugenics. Have you heard about that, Deb? I'd have to go look it up. But so, I mean, I guess the answer is no. <laughs> I don't know for sure. Well, I had to go look it up too. So the textbook explanation of the word eugenics is a scientifically erroneous and immoral theory of racial improvement, quote, and quote, planned breeding, unquote. Okay. I'm going to say I don't know what eugenics is. In other words... Scientists will deem certain genetic traits superior and any deformities are considered a weakness. It's a concept that the Nazi party would use to justify in the genocide against the Jewish people. Okay, I have no, no, I have no words for that. That's crazy. Okay, keep going. Well, you'll gasp at this one. Lindbergh was drawn to aspects of Nazism. <gasps> what? He gave speeches. He published papers with racist ideas. Could this controversial political belief have led to the death of Charles Jr.? Oh, don't tell me that. I know. It just, it do, this does keep getting worse. And to top it all off, Charles Jr. was born with some minor deformities such as rickets where his legs were bowed. He didn't have any strength in his lower body and seemed to be a little slow on development in that area. Oh, isn't that a calcium deficiency? You know, I don't know exactly what it is. I have seen it, but I don't know what causes it. Oh, goodness. Poor little Charles Jr. I know. And can you believe authorities stopped looking at the family and the case went cold? Well, there's that whole profile. When you have money and you're high profile like that, unfortunately, that, that's common. Mm-hmm. Well, in the summer of 1934, detectives got the break that they were looking for. After spending two years investigating and questioning close to 1,000 people, luck was on their side. The money that had certificate numbers found were in a distinctive path along New York City. 
$15,100 worth of ransom bills were recovered. But it's one in particular that cracks the case open. September 18, 1934, one of the notes pops up at a bank. This note has something different. It has a number written on the right-hand bottom. For you, 1341NY. And Deb, do you know have any idea what that might be? Nope because I'm still marveling at that combination of letters that you had told me earlier, the J-A-F-S-I-E. Oh, yes. Nope, that makes no sense to me. No, and it didn't to me. But it turns out it was a license plate number. And the bill was traced to a local gas station. And the station attendant, Walter Lyle, said that the gold certificate caught his attention and it felt suspicious to him, which surprises me that after two years, he'd still think of something as being suspicious on a gold note. Yeah. Can I talk about that for just a moment? Yeah. Okay. So I work with money every day and I have trained the people that I work with to look for certain things because, I mean, American money itself, there's a certain texture that you feel when you are exchanging currency. Well, we had a $20 counterfeit bill come through and nobody caught it, but the bank caught it when we went to go make a deposit. And there's a pen that you can use. Well, again, I've trained everybody that I work with to use the pen if something doesn't look right or feel right, you can certainly tell because we've had $10 bills run through. We've had $20 bills run through as counterfeit. I did find out pretty shortly after the second bill came through, I literally had people come and tell me that they knew what was going on. I had a an employee knowingly taking those counterfeit bills for their friend. Well, in my city, there's often signs that people will not even accept a denomination of a $50 bill anymore. Wow. It doesn't just happen with 50s, Beth. It happens with 10s and 20s. Hmm. Yeah. So interesting fact. Yeah. The bill was traced to a local gas station, and the station attendant, Walter Lyle, said that the gold certificate caught his attention and it felt suspicious to him. He thought that the customer was a counterfeiter and wrote down the license plate right there on the spot. Police run the plate and get a name. It is Bruno Hotman. Police now know the true identity of Cemetery John. Okay, so I just want to be clear. The gas station attendant wrote down the license plate on the certificate? Yes. Okay. So, because it was the only thing handy. Exactly. And back then, the men must have had neat printing because it is so clear on the bill. When I looked at it, it didn't look like gas attendant wrote it. It looks like a lady. Oh, okay. It uh, was just an interesting little piece that I thought. And when he was running, he was rushing to write it down that it was so neat and tidy. And he was in a rush too. So that's pretty cool. And he had good instinct. Yes, he did. So now we're on to Theory 5, The Lone Carpenter. Hotman is a German war immigrant illegally living in the U.S. He was charged with multiple burglaries in Germany, but he escaped by stowing away on an ocean liner. He lived in the Bronx with his wife and child and worked as a carpenter. As soon as police connected him with the money, they put Hotman under total surveillance, hoping he would slip up and incriminate himself. At some point, Hotman knew he was being followed. He jumped into his car and tried to make a break for it. A police chase ensued. The heat is on. The heat is on. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> 
Hey, that is a great song. Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) And a police chase ensued, and Hotman was finally pinned in the Bronx. He was arrested and authorities began a search of his car and his house. They searched everything without any interest until they looked out to the edge of the property. There, in a stack of old gas cans, police finally found $14,600 in gold certificates. And they found cans of ransom money in the garage. Now, from what it looked like in one of the photos that I saw, the garage had naturally at that time dirt floors. So these cans were actually buried in the, in the dirt floors. Wow. They raced to build a case against him. Detectives checked the serial numbers on each note and indeed were the certificates given as part of the ransom. Now, Deb, do you remember me talking about a ladder at the nursery window? I do remember because we were talking about, was it an accident or not? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, in the Hopman's attic, which surprises me that they would check an attic, found a handmade telescopic ladder designed to collapse on itself, easily being the height to reach the nursery window. (sighs) During their attic search, the authorities found a section of floorboards that had been cut. And they had a team of experts examining the wood floorboard and forensically compared it to the wood on the ladder. Very interesting. The results showed the grain of wood matched up with the ladder and nail holes also matched the nails to construct the ladder. In their search, authorities found another clue. A phone number was found written on the wall in the closet in the kitchen. Any ideas who that might be, Deb? No, I'm perplexed. A phone number was found. Well, it goes to your theory. Yeah? (gasps) It was Dr. Condon. (gasps) A handwriting analyst was hired to analyze Hotman's handwriting from it, and it was the same handwriting on the ransom notes. So he was completely, like I said, in cahoots at the cemetery with the mysterious man. It sounds like it. But the only thing I wonder is Dr. Condon was appointed. Now, when he was appointed, did he, is that when he thought maybe he could get involved with getting some money? I don't know. Who appointed him? Charles Lindbergh Sr.? So maybe the three of them were in cahoots with each other. I never thought of it being in a three-way cahoot. I was just thinking two-way, but it does make sense, doesn't it? It does, since you told me that Lindbergh refused to write down those serial numbers and he only gave a one-page account to his whereabouts the night of the disappearance. So there's got to be more than just two people involved. What is Dr. Condon going to get out of this entire situation? Obviously money, but it's deeper than that. Yes, it is. On September 24, 1934, Hotman was indicted for extorting the $50,000 from Charles Lindbergh. On October 8th, he was also indicted for the murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. The trial that was known as the crime of the century was so large that there were no hotel rooms around for miles. News reporters and curious people flocked to Hopewell. After conviction and two appeals, Hopman was executed by the electric chair on April 3rd, 1936. Oh, wow. Any thoughts there, Deb? I mean, they found him guilty. So I don't know if they found him guilty before he was innocent. There was certainly plenty of evidence on his property to suggest that he was definitely involved here, but I don't think he was the only one. No. 
And personally, I believe this was a crime in partnership with Hotman, like you said, and he took the fall. Whether it was with Condon or Lindbergh, it seems that they worked with Hotman. Oh, yeah. There was a trial run, maybe, for the kidnapping? <gasps> there you go. Wait a minute. Was that the night that Lindbergh played the practical joke on putting baby Charles into the closet? That's a fact that just slapped me in the head. I just, it just popped right out at me and I said, this has to be a trial run. Huh. Especially with it being so close in time. It was only a, two weeks later. Wow. And of course, Lindbergh was a supporter of Hitler. Oh, yeah. I saw a lot of photos of him saluting in the same way Hitler and his supporters did. That is crazy. And Lindbergh believed, just like Hitler, that the world should live under eugenics, which I mentioned earlier. So that's my thoughts. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. But I'm not a professional, so interesting, though. That's really an interesting theory right there. Yeah. And folks, I'd be really interested in hearing your response on this. When you see our social media, please leave a message to give us your thoughts on this theory. Wow, there's so much going on in my head right now. So much unanswered. I know. I know when I was growing up and I heard about this, that everything was left unanswered. But interesting that even today, there's still no answers. No. Now, when I read this book back uh, in my 20s, there were certainly not these theories. So I think it's interesting that the case was looked into again. Yeah, for sure. And that's the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. So, Deb, do you have a teachable moment for us today? Teachable moments. Well, I say that in any case, when people are investigating, especially if there's so many theories, we certainly can't rule any of them out. But then again, we do need to keep an open mind. For instance, did Lindbergh really take part in this? It's leaning towards that. But again, in today's world, you just you have to keep an open mind on people's thoughts, people's ideas. But then again, you have to use common sense. Yes, common sense, for sure. So I think that's my teachable moment. Oh, it was a good one today. Okay, well, Beth, you didn't disappoint me. Holy cow. That was an amazing story. So I'd be interested to know if they ever find any evidence. I know it's literally at this point, we're close to 100 years later. There probably will not be anything new outcoming from this. But thanks so much for that story. That was really excellent. I enjoyed that. Thank you. I really enjoyed doing this. I was very intrigued. And you do a good job putting your episodes together in. I mean, I don't think about these older cases, but you are really coming up with some good ones. I love old cases. <laughs> we'll let that be your thing then. Uh, you outshine me there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, if there's nothing else, we want to thank you for listening to our episode today. And before we go, we would love for you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and Pinterest at dying the number two the letter B found. If you like our episodes, please tell your friends and consider buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash dying to be found, spelled just the way you see it on our logo. And feel free to leave a comment on that page so that we know what we can be doing better. 
If you have an idea for a story that you would like for us to cover, please visit our website at dyingtobefound.com, spelled just like you see on our logo, or email us at dying, the number two, the letter B, found at gmail.com. So with that, be sure to check us out every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap. We will talk to everybody next week. Bye.